all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies to Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life's disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. Good morning and welcome to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is your program where you can call in with any kind of medical question that you might have. That's right. Our other Southern Remedy programs throughout the week tend to be theme-based, but uh, also welcome calls uh, related to the subject at hand. But on Wednesdays, we open all those subjects up. So we really, uh, you're, you're in charge of determining the content uh, for the hour. So call us right now with those questions you might have about a new medication, a new symptom, a new problem that you just can't nail down that's impacting your health or any kind of health care questions you might have. Well, if you notice my voice a little different, it's because I am right with about probably 70% of the, the people who are listening today uh, dealing with allergies uh, and, and they're back in full force. You know, that last little freeze sort of helped uh, quell a lot of that. I've been uh, noticing and dealing with my own bushes that were uh, damaged by the first freeze that we had. Um, but uh, also that second little freeze sort of knocked things back uh, from the pollen counts that we usually have. But those grasses are coming out, tree pollen still there, lots of things that can set those off. So I am suffering with you. You know, they say a physician doesn't know how to treat a patient uh, fully until they experience the condition themselves. So I feel like from an allergy standpoint, I totally, I, at least I have the empathy for everybody else out there. So hang in there. We will get through this together. Mississippi has a lot of positives, but some of the negatives, of course, deal with our climate and with uh, a lot of the uh, pollen and other things that are in the air. But uh, it's uh, one of the worst places, actually, for um, for allergies and uh, allergic rhinitis and um, other types of atopic or allergic type of uh, condition. So hang in there. Uh, we're, we'll get a break here and there. Got a couple of emails, that email address that you can um, send your questions in if you don't want to, if you can't call is remedy at mpbonline.org. The first one was about a um, patient of a grand, actually a grandparent called in and said, or emailed in and said, uh, our six-year-old is still toe walking. We previously tried therapy, but only for a month or two as it was very expensive. Is there anything else we can do to help our otherwise perfectly healthy child? Please don't uh, reveal our names, which we won't, of course, but uh, we did want to share this. So toe walking is very common up to the age of about two in individuals. And that's when just exactly what it says, the uh, child will walk on its toes instead of putting its heels down. And that's fairly normal. 
Um, but after that, um, particularly if they're six years old, they probably should be seen by an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in pediatrics or a non uh, non surgical orthopedic sports medicine person. Because there could be other things going on. There are ways to treat this bracing. Sometimes, very rarely, surgeries are involved. But um, if it goes on much beyond about two or three years of age, that's when you really need to get them looked at. And although a therapist can help out, there's some limitations to that, as they alluded to, with cost. And uh, you really need to see that physician to sort of drive that process. So that's what I would do. I would ask their normal physician that sees them to refer them to a pediatric orthopedic or pediatric sports medicine um, individual who uh, is trained in those areas to really get a look because there are some things like muscle imbalances. Sometimes there are uh, orthopedic uh, bone or uh, even neurologic problems that can uh, be causing this. And they're going to know what to do and some of the tests to do in the office to discern that. Uh, but sometimes it just happens and we just don't know why. So that's uh, something, to, a direction to point you in there. I'm going to go to Anna from Oxford. Good morning, Anna. Uh, good morning. Um, I wanted to make a comment. Um, last week, um, some gentleman called in and said that he had had iritis. Yes. Yes. Um, about 30 years ago, I did, and it was really strange. I just woke up in the morning uh, with like a haze over my eyes. Couldn't I could see light, but that was about it. And it was painful. Um, and it took, well, first of all, my GP tested me for everything. I mean, you, you name it, if I was tested. I was even tested for AIDS, which was ri- ridiculous. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then he sent me over to um, uh, an eye doctor uh, who I, I couldn't see, but I could recognize a voice because he was from North Carolina, and I told him I'd lived in North Carolina. He said, ah, you may have got something through your feet. You know, those worms that go up through your feet. So I got tested again, but no, nothing. And I was given, um, I guess it was, um, oh, I can't think of the name of it, those eye drops which remove inflammation. Probably like a steroid-based eye drop, yeah. Yeah, it was a steroid. And I was on that for almost a year Mm. before it it cleared up. And uh, he told me to have these on hand in case it came back again. They never found out what it was or why it was. But I guess 30 years later, they know more. Yeah, we do have some some tests that have popped up that at least give us a little bit more things in our arsenal to try to figure out what causes aritis. But it is an autoimmune process, and sometimes you don't find that. And it's, you know, we have this we have this general category in a lot of conditions called idiopathic. Idiopathic it starts with an I, and really it's the same derivation. It's of uh, the the word is is sort of similar to idiot. Which means we don't know, and um, and there's a lot of conditions too that we have to rule out. In other words, do tests and do different things and see if that's what's causing it, and then we check those off the list. And we're you know generally training physicians in training, they basically we're trained to develop a differential diagnosis, which is just a list of possibilities that. 
uh, a, a set of symptoms and conditions can can be caused by. And then sometimes, you know, we basically play the odds to say, okay, well, 90% of the time it's this. It's option A. Uh, 10% of the time it's option B. Let's treat it like A. If it doesn't get better, then we may go to B if we don't have a good test for it. And iritis is one of those things that could be caused by a whole handful of things. And you just gave us a great explanation, Anna, of, uh, you know, all the things that they can do to try to figure that out. Certain viruses can do that sometimes or set it off. Um, but most of the, or a lot of the time, you don't really find that. And um, unfortunately, you just sort of have to treat it as best you can. Steroids are very useful in treating autoimmune diseases because they basically, uh, and the eye is sort of nice because you can apply it right there where the problem is. And sometimes over time, that'll go away. The immune system stops um, you know, attacking that individual tissue to the point where it's like, okay, I recognize that as part of, of your own body now, so I'm not going to, I'm going to leave it alone. And that sounds like what happened in your case. And 30 years is a long time. Would it come back? Possibly, probably not, though. That's a long time. I, I, I was in Chicago when it happened, and I moved here. And so I went to the eye doctor here, and I explained to him that I had that. He said, I've got some, uh, like, white stuff in the back of my I go every year now because I'm, I'm pet, petrified it might happen again sure sure uh, um, and um, uh, it, he took me off the steroids yeah he said you, should, you shouldn't be using them and yeah it, you know the thing about steroids is they always have side effects to them whether you're yeah. taking them by mouth or even topically like that um, one of the safer ones is steroids you know sprays in the nose for we were talking about allergies earlier but even then you can thin the walls of the nose. You can have nosebleeds. You can have secondary infections that sometimes it's rare, but they do pop up. Same kind of thing in the eye. If The longer you use those drops, the more it can, you know, sort of damage some other tissues in the eye. But um, so at some point, it probably is worthwhile to take, you know, to come off of that. Yeah. Same thing if, if people are taking oral steroids. Uh, depending on the reason, of course, I'm I'm always like, okay, well, how long have you been on that? Can we take you off of it? Love taking people oh, off I of try, medications. I try not to go on them at all, right? <laughs> even if I need them. Uh, and secondly, on another note, sure. Um, in the middle of March, I suddenly uh, one of my salivary glands got blocked. I mean, thank. Mm-hmm. When I had the iritis, there was nothing to look up on Google, but now I could look this up. Sure. And it was funny because. Um, in October, the dental hygienist said, you've got like a little pimple on your, your salivary gland. And the dentist said, well, it's nothing. You know, that's fine. So it, it finally, it was blocked. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, kept using, massaging my cheek and everything else. And finally, like little grains of sand came out. Yep. And um, I, from what I Googled, it was probably calcium, but um, it's gone away now. <laughs> yeah. What's the likelihood of it coming back again? It could. Um, you know, so the, the one of the biggest places where you see that is from the parotid gland, which the parotid gland sits um, sort of near the angle of the jaw. And it has a long duct that goes into the mouth. The duct is just, you know, a small tube there. And it secretes certain things to help the digestive process begin. So it helps to break down things. So there's calcium salts and all kinds of other enzymes that help to start that process and just to lubricate food to break it up. Um, now, it, it, for whatever reason, you could have damage to that uh, right at the where it empties out inside the mouth. 
uh, to that salivary duct. But it'll block up like that, either from inflammation right there and sort of close off for a while. And that that those salivary enzymes don't have anywhere to go. So they sometimes uh, drop out of solution and they form these stones. Uh, and it's just the hard material that's not in solution anymore. And it can be painful sometimes. Uh, very rarely they have to do surgery for that. Sometimes they can open up the duct, but honestly, I haven't found in my patients that have had that done they've had any more success than uh just sort of waiting it out and doing the massage and those kinds of things but it really depends on the cause of it so if it was something that was going on in your mouth at the time um you know i'm i'm the world's worst person about like biting my my buckle mucosa that my inside of my cheek or my tongue probably because i eat too fast and talk while i'm doing it but um Uh, you know, I do that all the time, and so I have a lot of scar tissue there just from, you know, habitually doing that over time. And some people, when they sleep, do that too. So those are all some things that might have caused that uh, to happen. Would it come back? Possibly, but it, not necessarily. You can just have that once and not have it again. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it can it be healed. painful. Yeah, yeah, it, it's healed. It didn't <clears throat> take too long to heal. Um, you know, as I said, Googling these things kind of helps relieve the mind. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, Anna, thank you for calling. We okay. do appreciate you listening and calling in. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. You can always email us if you're not able to call in right now. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. We're going to go to Laura, who's patiently waiting from Oxford. Good morning, Laura. Good morning, Dr. Jimmy. Um, I have a, a comment, kind of concern, followed by a question. Sure. Um, I'm a clinical psychology professor at the University of Mississippi, and I do a lot of GLBT support work, mm-hmm. um, including work with trans and gender um, nonconforming individuals. And I am incredibly concerned about the situation in Mississippi right now, which is, you know, legislatively contradictory to our professional ethics as psychologists. Um, For example, we have an American Psychological Association resolution supporting full equality for gender and gender-variant people. Um, You may or may not know that last um, uh, Friday, March 30th, was proclaimed um, Transgender Day of Visibility by President Joe Biden. And this year, in the context, we have lost three young lives of individuals in Mississippi just this year, including Jimmy J. Lee, who was a student, a very, very promising um, recent grad at the University of Mississippi. Mm. And I'm, we're in a quandary at this point because we know the science. We know what the American Psych Association says, what the American Medical Association says, what the American Academy of Pediatrics says on these issues. And yet, how do we, I guess this is my question, how would you advise those of us working with individual clients and support groups and families um, in this um, legal context? Yeah, it's a um, it, it's a that's a tough issue. And, and oh, sorry, go I think ahead. I'm going to hang up and ta- I think I'm going to hang up and take my answer um, okay. off the air. Sure. But if you would spend some time talking about that and giving 
suggestions for us because we're at a point where we're unable to um, provide best practice. Sure. Yeah. So thank that, you so much. Thank you for calling. Uh, so, Laura, that's that is a excellent question and quandary that we have um, in this area and some other areas too. Um, I will say, you know, the interface between medicine and what we know about, uh, you know, the the science behind things, which is the way we're trained, right? That is what we're supposed to do with any medical specialty is to say, okay, here's the science. We keep up with it. We uh, are continually, uh, we have maintenance of certification in different uh, areas of our specialties where we um, have to be up on that over time. And sometimes there is an interface with public opinion or with uh, led the you know what's what's the legislature's views on things and in trying to uh, navigate that can be very difficult. And honestly, it it's really a lot of it is you know uh, is is in the realm of medical ethics too. Like what is what's the most ethical thing that we can do? I think our job is hard and easy. Um, as a you know, as a medical professional, I took an oath to take care of my patients, regardless of what their background is or any other thing. So that is my obligation to them. That quite frankly supersedes any kind of contractual arrangement, whether that's insurance or non-insurance. This is just my personal beliefs because of what I've done for the past twenty-five years, and. Um, that commits me to trying to take care of that patient in the best way that I can uh, using the evidence that is there um, and everything at my my disposal. So sometimes you don't have that, though, because of differences, of, again, of opinion in where you practice and state laws. And certainly I'm not about breaking state laws necessarily. I'm not advocating for that at all. However, I think when you get to that point where there's a discrepancy between what you believe is the best way to treat a patient that um, is directly oppositional to the way that the law has or the the public opinion is, there's a couple of things that this is the hard part of what we do. The easy part, I think, is following our oath and doing no harm and trying to aggressively treat our patients following the science. The hard part is advocacy. And some people do it better than others. Um, advocacy does not mean that we um, allow our emotions to uh, aggressively punish or aggressively go after individuals, but to, again, express what we do, which is the science. And we certainly can allow our emotions to fuel that and uh, and our experiences and certainly experiences with patients that we have and you just unfortunately describe several very unfortunate um, uh, you know negative uh, consequences of individuals who were struggling uh, that couldn't possibly get the treatment that they needed um, and access, even access to that. So it is it is something that we have to continually do. And advocacy means direct conversations with people and the people who represent us in our state legislature and national uh, representatives um, and all branches of legislation. They represent us. And it's our duty to do that, um, to to do that um, often and uh, to be available. And my hope is in the way you know that I've talked to. 
actually, I was the uh, a past president of the American Academy of Pediatrics for the state of Mississippi. So I had a lot of interactions at that time on a number of issues with uh, state and, and local representatives and oftentimes talked to them directly about that. And uh, sometimes we agreed, sometimes we didn't, but I tried to follow the science and my experience. And that is a long, frustrating, continual battle that we fight for what we best believe is right for our patients. And um, it is not something, I think there's a misconception too. I don't think, you know, I'm 53 years old and I've been practicing medicine 25 of those years. I don't think that um, it is within our power to say, or even in our our foresight to say, one of these days we're going to, you know, tackle this problem and we're going to have all kinds of, you know, easy access to things and all the resources. I just don't, I, I'm, I'm, maybe that's a little bit of a realistic view, though, that we, I think that's going to be a continual battle that we always fight, and we should fight, um, to secure the best resources for the patients that we treat within our discipline. So that's my personal thoughts on that. And, you know, I don't, uh, I really, I had a lot of good mentors in this uh, along my career and even before that, that, and like my grandmother, uh, that taught me, look, you respect the person and you can advocate for an idea. And um, I think that's something else that we should do. If you're very, if you've had some uh, an individual that has had a negative outcome because of a, a legislative action, by all means, contact those people. Tell them about that. Contact the people who represent you and tell them your story because the story is what matters. It's the ideology that you know sort of drives that sometimes. But really, it's about those stories of individuals. And there's positive outcomes in some areas and negatives in others. But again, there are many things that I have advocated for this. You know, this is just one one area that we all can advocate for. But that's the the um, approach, I guess, that I would that I would take and to talk to people about. It. I do think there are certain subjects in Mississippi that culturally, historically, we haven't really been able to talk about. And uh, there's some fear there that talking about it is going to have a negative outcome. And, uh, you know, I just don't think that's historically anything that we should uh, be afraid of. Usually when we talk about things and have civil discourse about it and come to a decision to move forward in an area, that's a much better outcome than not talking about it at all. So I would encourage people to do that. If you haven't done that, you'd just be surprised how many people don't contact their legislator, uh, legislature uh, representatives, uh, either in state Senate or in the, in the House uh, or at, at, in the executive branch. But that's something that all of us can do, and they should hear from us because we are the people who they represent. So that is my two cents worth as a physician on that, not just on this this topic, but uh, lots of topics. And I don't shy away with my opinions about that to those people, and again, based on the science and based on my experience. So that's that's my two cents about that. So I'm not sure I totally gave you a simple solution, but I think it's one that all of us should fight and continue to express our opinions to those who represent us. Um, pretty much for the rest of our lives because that's sort of how things work. 
This is Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of healthcare topic that you would like discussed or having an answer to. Uh, we do uh, encourage you, if you can't call in to email, we do take those uh, email questions. And uh, if you uh, give us permission to share those on the air, we do that. Uh, we try not to share any names on those, so don't let that hinder you from uh, – from uh, sharing those with us. Did have one that's very interesting and could be a couple of different things I thought I'd share. Uh, This is from a listener that says um, they're 60 years old and uh, they have had a problem during the winter season that affects their fingers and toes every year for the past 15 years. They've uh, been um, to several different doctors and have not gotten a a, uh, answer for that yet every winter winter around december january until march april they suffer with severe swelling inflammation reddening and their digits of their hands turn blue scaling of the skin as well on the fingers and toes followed by pitting and vertical splitting and damage of their nails all over by the end of may or june they get some relief <clears throat> but it left a lot of discoloration on the skin over their fingers over the years it's a painful recurring experience every year uh, which they call a recurring winter curse. So they wanted to know if this is something like Raynaud's or Chilbane's um, and uh, what's going on here. A couple of things that come to mind. Now, Raynaud's is a phenomenon where you can get vasospasm, so you can get a reduction in blood flow to an area that is exposed to cooler temperatures. So it is a, uh, it's an allergic-type reaction. It's sort of in the autoimmune category. Raynaud's can be um, associated with other immunologic conditions. So sometimes it goes along with things like rheumatoid arthritis or mixed connective tissue disease. Or you can just have Raynaud's by itself. The best thing, and it usually goes through a couple of different phases as the blood flow decreases, um, the digits get white because they lose blood flow. You could, you know, do this on yourself if you probably have as a kid. Remember to sort of cut off circulation to something and watch it go white. And then <clears throat> eventually it turns a sort of a bluish color. And then there is a hyperemic or once that the vasospasm goes away, then it becomes red. So it's sort of patriotic, but not in, in a good way. Um so what do you do for that? Well, um, Raynaud's can be treated with a number of things. First of all, looking for a cause is one thing that you would want to do. There's also some other um, other things that masquerade as Raynaud's, uh, like cold agglutinins that uh, can precipitate in arteries in your digits as well. Warming them up is a good thing and keeping your hands, you know, trying to avoid those cold temperatures, even though we don't see a whole lot of that in Mississippi, certainly from time to time we do. And another thing is certain medications like calcium channel blockers, which is an, an older medication used to treat hypertension, very effective. And some of the calcium channel blockers, particularly Procardia XL, um, has been used to uh, to treat this. And in low doses, it doesn't have to be really high doses to decrease your blood pressure. If you have high blood pressure, it's sort of nice to hit both of those, um, both of those uh, at the same time. Another thing that might happen also is in another allergic type reaction that some people get in their skin, uh, like dyshydrotic eczema. So typically this will be very similar to what this person is describing, but it's treated a little bit differently. You treat it sort of like an eczema flare 
And uh, again, it's set off by that cooler temperature. And sometimes the hands can sort of dry out. They get scaly. They get these little pimple-like um, um, uh, indentations or, or eruptions on them on the palms. Sometimes on the feet, too. It can be very uh, pruritic. It itches a lot. It can be sort of painful, too. And it can affect the nails as well. So if, if, if you haven't, if this person hasn't seen a rheumatologist and they've really gone to several different doctors, that's who I would go to because, again, they're sort of the experts on autoimmune conditions um, and uh, to try to figure out what this is and then to get the right treatment for it. So probably Raynaud's, maybe dyshydrotic eczema, but I would get somebody to, to take a look at it, particularly in you know the season that you're having problems. Probably not going to be much to do if you're in the summertime, so you might have to wait till the fall or winter to... Uh, or when it first starts, you first start to see symptoms to go to that person. We're going to go to um, Chris from Hattiesburg. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, thanks for calling. Oh, wonderful, thank you. Um, so my question is about it's my one of my thumbs. It locks, and I literally like have to push it back into place, and it's really painful. Yep. Um, I I know I do have some osteoarthritis already. My mom's hands were, well, she had a lot of pain. So it could be something, um, you know, that I got from her. I, do, I, I have used my hands all of my life, mm-hmm. like as a fine artist, and and I type extensively. Mm-hmm. And that there, that that's it. I'm wondering, um, besides medication, is there something else? Yeah. Yeah. So so this sounds like a what's called a trigger finger. And what happens is you can develop through sort of wear and tear of the joints. This actually is more has more to do with the tendons, though, that control mm-hmm. that movement of the digit that you can get little calcium deposits on those and they can lock up and you have to do exactly what you describe. You have to sort of straighten them out or bend them. And the more you do that, sometimes you can work it out. It can be very painful. It is often associated with osteoarthritis and is you're more apt to have it with more wear and tear on the fingers over time or even wrist. But um, one thing that, that I would suggest doing is going to an orthopedic hand surgeon uh, because they can do some really specific things. They can, it sounds terrible, but it actually is not that painful and it works really well, is they can inject that little lesion to break up that calcium and they're the best people oh, to on. do it. Um, but medications aren't going to do a whole lot besides, um, besides treat the pain that's associated with that. But they can actually do something to get the mobility back. And if you get the mobility back, you should be able to do what you're doing. But if you use your hands repetitively, you're going to have at least some type of osteoarthritis or chronic you know, degenerative changes to that at some point in your life. But uh, I, what I'm probably maybe, you know, this isn't the goal, but I bet it is. Um, you know, most people's goal in your case would be to continue doing what you're doing. And the earlier they can treat that, the better the outcome. So if if you're having that problem right now, I would go ahead and go to them and say, hey, this is my problem. They're probably going to be able to fix it fairly easy. Um, and usually it's the dominant hand or the hand you use the most. And the, the thumb and the uh, index finger, the pointy finger, is uh, are the two one, uh, you know most common places just because that's those are the ones that you use the most. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's actually my left hand or yeah it's my left hand which isn't my dominant 
Hmm. But again, yes, I use them both yeah. all the time. Yeah, and it may, it may be, uh, yeah, you, awesome. meant, you mentioned your mom having having it too, you know, and uh, so it's a, you know, it's sort of that with pretty much everything, it's a combination of genetics and then how much you use right. it or the environment. So it's probably a little bit of both there. Right. Well, her, her, it looked like she had uh, RA, uh-huh. but she always tested negative. And yeah, because it was like, the, uh, I mean, her her joints, um, yeah, her knuckles, like really, really, really swollen. Yeah, and yeah, just R- rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, rheumatoid arthritis or RA. Typically, the pattern is the wrist, and then the MCPs, which is where the fingers attach to the hand. Those are the joints mm-hmm. that are most affected. Uh, Usually, okay. the the two joints of, of your fingers and one of your thumb. Uh, you know, in the in the fingers themselves, those are the ones with osteoarthritis that typically get sore and a little uh, bit bigger. Okay. So that that's not always the pattern, but that's the general pattern. I'd say in ninety percent of the time. And the other thing with with os- with rheumatoid arthritis, a lot of times that joint will be very hot and it'll feel like dough underneath the skin, and we call mm-hmm. that synovitis because uh, the synovium that sort of lines that joint space gets gets big and inflamed. So, um, but yours, yours sounds like more like due to osteoarthritis and then a trigger finger, but I've had, I, in fact, I just sent a patient a couple of weeks ago to, uh, an orthopedic, uh, hand surgeon and, you know, they had good outcome with that. So that's, that's who I would go to next. Thank you. Yeah. I've not heard about the, the injection to break up the calcium. So mm-hmm. thank you so much. You're that's welcome. You're you. welcome. Good luck to you. Uh, we're going to go to Don from Vicksburg, Vicksburg. Good morning, Don. Yes, good morning, doctor. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I recently received a head of MRI, and it reported that I have redundancy of the cardiac inquine nerve roots, which suggests significant spinal stenosis that can predispose me for cardiac inquine syndrome. And that's a mouthful. Could you explain what that means, please? Yeah, that was of your of your lower spine or up near yes, your neck. Yes. Uh, lower spine? My lower spine. Yeah. L- yeah, like L5s S1. So so right. that is the the uh, cardia equine. So that's like a description of the nerves that go from having they're all bundled up together in the spinal cord and once they get down to the bottom they sort of spread out. And that is the Latin term for horse's tail because that's what it looks like. Um, and if you, uh, if uh, certain things would predispose you to having a narrow spinal canal where those nerves come through, and if that's the case, it can oftentimes produce pain in those nerves where they innervate, like lower extremity usually. If you're not having that, um, they may just want to follow that over time, and there's really not really anything to do if you're not having symptoms. In other words, if you're not having significant pain in your lower extremities or weakness, um, then then that's nothing nothing to do. If you are, then they probably need to look at those that canal, that space that the spinal cord and those nerves go through. And if it gets too narrow, they can go in and do surgery to open that up. Um, but that's that's a big issue. Another thing is like it's not just weakness of the lower extremities, but those nerves also control like your bladder and your bowel functions. So your physician is probably going to ask you about 
questions related to is it easy or hard to go to the bathroom, like to urinate or to uh, if you're having con- chronic constipation, because that might be a symptom, too. Patients sometimes look at me sideways when I ask them those kinds of questions when they present with lower extremity pain. If that occurs, then that's sort of an accelerator to go ahead and get the surgery. Um, because that's that, you know, once you get a little bit of nerve damage, most of it's going to or some of it may come back, but a lot of it doesn't. And you don't want to lose those nerves going to your bladder or your uh, intestines because that could be bad. Okay, I do experience pain, but in the meantime, before I get this, once I go to a neurosurgeon, right. would I have to restrict my movements or lifting of no. No, I mean, you want to be careful that you don't overextend yourself. But actually, movement, and they may actually, when you see them, they may prescribe physical therapy for that. Mobility exercises, in other words, stretching and, you know, how much you can reach and bend and everything, those can be very good for you. Um, and then strengthening the muscles around your back so that you're not putting more stress on those vertebral bodies is important too. So they're probably going to mention that if they don't bring it up because I think that's a good idea. And if they can prescribe that, that'd be a really cool thing to do that will probably improve your pain. All right, thank you so much, Dr. Sure. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering lots of good questions today. Y'all always bring really good questions to the table for us to discuss. We're going to go to Jerry from Bay Springs. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning. Thank you for your show. Thank you. Uh, My question, I don't know if you covered this. I heard you talking about hands, and that reminded me. Um, My father, when he was alive, my brother, now uh, 62 years old, and my um, daughter at age 42, all have red, cracked hands and fingers. And they crack open and sometimes bleed and itch. And it's obviously something hereditary. And I think all of them have been to the doctor and they've gotten this and that salve and the steroids and emu oil and all this stuff. And nothing is working. Do you know of anything they could do? I'll yeah. hang up and, and sure. Uh, sure. take the answer. Yeah. I, okay, so in a, yes, sir. In a situation like this, when a patient's in multiple patients in the same family, if they've been to multiple doctors and they keep trying different things, I tend to have a backup and punt or backup and regroup, I guess, huddle, not punt, but um, approach to it. And that is, okay, let's try to figure out, is this something that's hereditary? Is it some maybe something that they're, each one of them is susceptible to an autoimmune process? Or is this an infectious process? Or is it an allergic process? And if I can't figure that out, I go to the smart people who can. So those are rheumatologists. Again, they specialize in autoimmune processes. So if I see something in that that looks like that, that's where I would go. An allergist, which also they deal in autoimmune and allergic processes and, um, uh, you know, infectious disease type things. Those usually don't aren't that chronic like that. If so, if they haven't, you know, if they haven't resolved in a couple of months, that's probably out of the picture or a dermatologist would be somebody else. 
And um, I think once you get into, and hey, I, I've done this too, to say, oh, well, why don't we try this? Why don't we try a topical steroid? Or why don't we try a topical antifungal agent and just toward, sort of to see? A good thing to do is to get a biopsy of that those one of those lesions. So that's just a little skin biopsy of that just to see what those cells are doing and what the process is. And I encourage people to do that. Sometimes they're like, well, can't you just give me something to put on there? Well, if we don't know what we're treating when that may not be useful. So that's what I would say is to go to a dermatologist who can do a little skin biopsy and see if um, see what they find there, probably for each one of those, if they're still alive, those people, but whoever's, you know, having it right now, you just go and do that and you may get some answers that might give you a more specific um, remedy for that. Um, one thing I did want to say earlier, we were talking about, you know, like uh, different things that could damage the inside of the mouth. I get a question a lot of times about um, what I got a lot of questions about, you know, what about deep cuts in the mouth or the tongue? Typically, those heal up really well. If they go all the way through uh, to the outside, then they can cause problems. But if not, sometimes they heal up just fine. Or if they cross the lip, like the vermilion of the lip, that's that uh, portion of the lip that's that's colored. If they cross that line, then they, they're probably not going to you know go back together. But I've seen huge, deep cuts uh, on patients in their mouths, and they heal up pretty much just fine. Let's try to go back to Mary right quick to squeeze in this last call. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, sir. Thank you for calling. Let me make you. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, is there any reversal for cortisone damage? Uh, this person is now in a wheelchair. I'm, I was going to say more, but let me cut it short. Sure. And the next person is I, I have a friend who has a UTI and it's been constant, ongoing for years. And they never can find anything to stop it. It'll stop it, and then it'll come back. So I'm gonna stop with that. Yeah, but I can hang up. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Cortisone is okay. a cortisone is a steroid, and um, all of the steroids can have negative side effects. We've talked about that today and on previous programs. And um, there's not really anything you you can do besides stopping that. Now, some of the steroid side effects that are more <clears throat> permanent can be related to the eye or to bone loss. Um, to, uh, you know, things like osteoporosis. So you do have to be careful about that. But there's not anything that you can really give that could reverse that process. So you do have to sparingly use that. If you're using it on the skin, though, like hydrocortisone, it can thin out the skin and it can make the skin very sensitive to light, like UV radiation. Uh, but you, you, you can pretty much just maybe try to stop that and go to something else. As far as chronic UTIs, urinary tract infections or bladder infections, a lot of that has to do with the piping system. Uh, so if you have a system that leaks over time, you know, it's common in uh, women who have had multiple childbirths or surgeries in their pelvis. A lot of times they'll be more susceptible to that. Sometimes they can do some surgeries to help them uh, urinate more functionally uh, or they put them on antibiotics to try to prevent those. But unfortunately, sometimes you just have to just take the antibiotics as they come up with frequent UTIs. But if you've had more than one or two, you know, in a year or even more than that, one a month, or uh, you probably need to see somebody that's a urogynecologist. So this is an OBGYN that has some special additional training 
with the bladder system there. So that would be my recommendation to uh, to this patient, to your friend there, to maybe see somebody if they haven't already about that condition. Well, that's about all the time we have. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Southern Remedy is produced by Kevin Farrell. The podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.